Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing a very bloody good book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. The author of Sapiens, which we did earlier in season three, which was all about the past. And he's also the author of Homo Deus, which is all about the future. And this is his third book, The 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is all about the present. What does the next 100 years look like? What sort of questions do we need to ask? And how can we shape the direction we're headed in as a, as a world? I think it's an absolute privilege to get to read books like this because this guy must be the most insightful person on the planet in my own humble opinion. And, you know, there's parts of this book that absolutely just blow my mind with what he, what he writes and it really takes your brain to different places. So, as you said, this book is all about uh, understanding the present and in context of the past and the future. And it's in five different parts of the book. And we'll kick it off with part one, the technological challenge. So one of our favorite lessons was chapter one, disillusionment. And it really sets the tone for the rest of the book. And the reason being is that we have stories, you know, humans think in stories rather than facts and numbers and equations. And at the moment, there's 7 billion people and we all have our own individual 7 billion different individual agendas. But we need to try and come together with some kind of unifying story that we can all relate to and we can all believe in. So if we throw it back to sapiens, this was actually the thing that allowed humans to dominate the planet. So before our ability to tell stories, we could only just like go around in groups of 150 and we couldn't really collaborate. But when back then he says we had um, some cognitive mutation, all of a sudden we could tell stories and then we could walk around in groups of a million just because we have the shared same shared idea about you know some kind of god in the sky and then another community might have the same thing so all of a sudden you had different wars but then if you move it all the way back now to the present there were new stories that really collect our species together and at the start of the 20th century we really had only three stories that really collected the whole planet yeah so you said at the start of the 20th century there was fascism communism and liberalism and they were sort of in this this struggle for which story was going to win out so at the end of the second world war fascism as a story was knocked out and then with the fall of the soviet union the story of communism was all but knocked out and he said that after that all that was left was liberalism but at the moment that's almost under threat as well yeah 100 percent. so you know if you think about fascism in the 1940s when you had big big bad boy hitler you know, it's this hyper form of, of nationalism. After they that whole thing just come, crumbled and collapsed and retrospectively how stupid it is, obviously that story is just absolutely dissed. Communism, you know, it only ends up bad. All the experiments in the past with the Soviet Union and so forth, there was hunger under Stalin. There was, you know, apparently close to 100 million deaths and same with Mao and so forth. So again, that story has been knocked out of the park. But right now, you know, we're only left with this story of liberalism and capitalism. And now this story is also becoming on shaky ground. Yeah, so since pretty much the GFC was almost the, the seed that was planted where people thought maybe this isn't the answer after all, we thought that, you know, capitalism and, and strong, you know, economic growth is the answer to everything. And everyone was happy, everything was growing, everything was going gangbusters. But then the GFC happened where the most powerful institutions and, and governments actually were doing a few things not so good. And perhaps maybe this isn't the answer at all. And people are starting to become disillusioned with this story that we all hold. Yeah, so this was the only story that we've got. And right now, we might be collapsing with this story. Because, mm. you know, right now around the world, we've got things like global warming. 
And traditionally, with liberalism, this was a thing that uh, it was always this reliance on growth to get us solve every single problem that was presented to the human species and it got us above the poverty line and all this kind of stuff. But right now, economic growth is not going to get us away from global warming. Rather, it's actually the thing that causes global warming. Yeah. So he said that at, in 1938, humans had an options of three global stories to choose. In 1968, we were down to two stories. In 1998, we had one story. And he says in 2018, we're down to zero stories. And he says that because you know this idea of liberalism is starting to crumble as well, we're suddenly left without any story, any unifying story. And he says that it's ter- terrifying and nothing makes sense when you've got no underlying story that you live your life by. Yes. And simultaneously right now, we've got revolutions in biotech and infotech and all this kind of stuff, which we're going to get a bit more into uh, you know, toward the end of the book. But these things are disrupting human beings to become more irrelevant than ever. So with the communist story, a lot of that was to do with this idea of exploitation, right? So the rich exploit the poor. So that means we need to share the pie for everybody. And now the liberal story saying, you know, anyone from the bottom can actually make it and become rich in the capitalist society and really have that this idea of freedom. But right now, the robots are taking away that story. So, you know, it's really hard to come up with a story that comes against this idea of exploitation. Yeah, and it's sort of important that we're... Because, you know, Yuval is saying that this is really a crucial time where there's going to be a lot of massive changes and we need to have some kind of philosophy or story that sort of guides what we do over the next 10 years and the next 100 years with some massive, massive, massive changes that are coming that we'll talk about through the rest of the book. But at the moment, I say with Brexit and with Trump and big different ideas, he's saying that there's no story left and there's nothing to guide how all this massive change in biotech and infotech are going to develop over the next couple of years. And he says that without that underlying philosophy, it's going to be super dangerous to have Massive change with no guidance. It's going to be very interesting going forward. You know, what story can we come up with to fight the new challenges of the human species like global warming? And, you know, in my brain, I've got nothing to dig from there. I think we're pretty fucking cooked, if I was brutally honest. So that's the first major question he poses and the first set of ideas that we need to think about. And the next one he talks about in this first part, which is the, the technological challenge is work and the idea of maybe when some people grow up, there might not be a job for them. Yes, which is kind of unfortunate as we're going to find out as we get into it. So, (laughs) there's people in two different camps, but both really have the same ending. So, in one camp, they believe, some people believe that in just a decade or two, billions of people will become economically redundant. But then in the other camp, they think even in the long run, automation will keep generating new jobs and greater prosperity for all. Yeah, so they think that you know we've we've heard, we've heard all these ideas that AI is coming and robots are coming and machines are going to take over all humans' jobs. So some people think that even as jobs are replaced, new ones will will come in that need to service those machines. And some people think that you know what, in ten years we're all going to be slaves to the robots and all our jobs are going to be gone. So there's two very different camps. And he says that even for the last two centuries, as far back as the 1800s, people were worried that automation and machines are coming to to take their jobs but really nothing's ever materialized 200 years later we're still fine it's all good but Yuval says that even though we've got the same fears that we had 200 years ago this time it could be different and it could be the end yeah so you know all those people who think oh we're going to be fine think back to the industrial revolution you know there's just more jobs and new jobs but 
uh, they just didn't know what jobs they would be, but they, mm. they just came in and then, you know, all human society, we flourish and the unemployment rates stayed low. But if you fast forward it to today, and if you really look at it, Yuval style, we'll call it, <laughs> you know, human beings have two types of abilities, physical and cognitive. And back in the industrial revolution, they knocked out a lot of the physical side of things. But AI, it's taking out only other ability we have over these systems and technologies, and that's the cognitive side of things. Yeah, so 100 years ago, machines could do physical tasks a lot better than humans, but you still needed humans to run the machines because humans were still far superior cognitively over the machines. But now that AI is coming, artificial intelligence is coming to now take over these cognitive skills. Like if our physical abilities are done better by machines and now our cognitive abilities are going to be done done better by machines um what's left for us yeah i, I don't know mate there's, <laughs> there's not a third there's not a third ability that i can think of other than physical and cognitive so mate this ai revolution it's not just about computers getting faster and smarter and cheaper but they can start to understand the biochemical mechanisms that underpin the human behavior desire and choices mm. so right they can better predict our behavior better than bankers, lawyers, and drivers. And the thing is, they don't have the same limitations as we do. You know, we've done a lot of books on psychology and, and cognitive biases, but the machines don't have these. And we think that, you know, the, the person who's the, the best financial trader in the world or at top of their cognitive field, we think, oh, this guy's or this girl's got the best intuition and they just have a natural ability to be really good at this specific task. But really what Yuval says, it's not intuition, it's just a long exposure to patterns and it's really just pattern recognition. So you've seen the same things forming over and over and over. So you think you've got this intuition that you know what's happening next, but really it's just uh, you know deliberate practice almost for this pattern recognition. But what he's saying is now you're Computers don't need 30 years of training. They just need to pattern recognize better than humans can, which they're doing. So pretty much we're cooked. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, everything is just pattern recognition on that level. But if you take it down to the deep human level where you think creativity and all this kind of stuff's involved, it's really just a whole bunch of different biochemical processes. And eventually, AI is going to be able to understand these processes, right? So, you know, it could get pretty pretty bloody wild for a lack of a better word yeah. when, when they so, can decide just say all right you know this this person's got this emotion coming up and then the ai might start to optimize for this emotion right so say if you think of the area of music um so in the area of music so one specific person might really like this you know niche type of house music and then all of a sudden uh the ai realizes the emotions getting up and he's having a real high and then it might optimize just for this one person. You have this AI making this whole fucking wild song just for this person. And then they go on a wild bender for six days. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, that was in the book as well that he was saying that if, say, you go through a time, something bad happens during the day and you feel sad and you've got certain biochemical things happening inside of you. And what you normally do to do that is listen to a certain type of music and it picks you up. Whereas the rather than you deciding to do that, the... AI inside of your body will learn that, okay, he's got these chemical things happening, so something bad must happen. What he usually does to fix that is listen to this type of music so they can start to predict things way better just based on that, which a human could never do. Hmm. Mate, so as we alluded to earlier, you know, the biggest thing about these robots coming, uh, a lot of people might get excited by the things, oh, oh yeah, they're taking all their work. We don't have to do much. We can just <laughs> hang out all day. But Unfortunately, the people, these class of people who don't have to work, they're going to be useless to society. 
um, there's no better way of putting it. There's going to be people who can't really add any value just because all opportunities to add value are already taken. Yeah. He says that, okay, there might be new jobs replacing the old jobs that are getting taken away by machines, but the new jobs would be things like maintenance, um, controlling these like remotely, data analytics, cybersecurity, all of these things that would be replacing the tasks that the humans would be doing and you're, you know, you're now maintaining or controlling these machines. But that's not something that everybody can do. That's like a, something you need to be seriously educated to do. So he says it in the past, in the 19th century, guys who were riding wagons and, and on the back of horses, they could switch over to driving taxis. And that was the 19th century change and the 20th century change. But now he's saying that these people who are driving taxis might not be able to then shift to you know, running cybersecurity. He's saying it's a completely different shift, not just from one physical task to another physical task. You need to try and shift from physical to cognitive. And he's saying that these people at the bottom, the lower class, could become the useless class, he says, as they get pushed out altogether, which is a, a harsh thing to face. But uh, the way Yuval puts it, it makes makes sense. Yeah, it's much easier for them to say, oh, I'm being exploited by my boss working long hours in this factory compared to just being irrelevant and being yeah. absolutely useless. So, yeah. One positive in all this, he says that uh, at the moment, and he thinks still in the future, that currently if you look at a, a team of humans or a team of AIs by themselves is still inferior to a team of a human plus an AI. So he's saying in, still in all jobs today, the combination of a human mind and the AI is still outperforming just an AI by itself or just a human by itself. So there's a glimmer of hope there. Oh, let's hope so, mate. So uh, <laughs> yeah, man, that's our, our take from, from part one of the book, the technological challenge. Um, yeah, big, big challenges, big questions. So for part two of the book, we shift towards a political challenge and chapter seven is all about nationalism. So we've, we've kind of set the scene a little bit with some of the, the challenges that we're going to face in the 21st century. But right now, there is this trend at the moment. So you've got Trump, which is kind of more of a nationalism agenda, all about making USA great again. Uh, you've got you know, Brexit, so Britain leaving the EU. So there's these movements towards this uh, idea of nationalism. But this whole chapter kind of questions whether nationalism really does solve these unprecedented problems of the world. So we feel this relationship and this loyalty to our immediate family, you know, our brothers and sisters, our cousins, our parents, we've got that thing that we belong to the family, so we've got this loyalty to them. It also extends to maybe our neighborhood, our community, but it also extends to our nation in that we think that if I'm from Australia, I've got some kind of inherent link and loyalty to the other 25 million people in Australia. And that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. The problem comes when that this idea that your nation is unique and special and that your nation is better than others. So just belonging to a nation isn't bad. But when you think I'm Australian, so I'm better than every other country, that's when real issues start to pop up. It could be a, it could be a very bad thing to have such strongly held national identities. But he's saying most of the massive challenges that we face in the 21st century are global challenges and they can't be solved by any one nation. They need to be collaborative where everybody works together with a sense of globalism, not nationalism. So we've got the first big challenge we've got that he goes into is the ecological challenge, which is, in short, the biggest ecological challenge we've got at the moment is global warming. So, you know, human species, humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, agriculture for 10,000 years. We've had this huge spike in greenhouse gases in, you know, the last few centuries, and it's this, it's it's a fucking wild 
experiment about what's going to happen. You know, you've got people on both sides of the equation making predictions, but at the end, end of the day, it is just an experiment. And if the experiment goes badly, then we're all pretty cooked. So we need some kind of solution to this experiment we're going on. Yeah, he says like the deserts are expanding, the ice caps are shrinking. And with all these different changes that are coming, he says we're sort of coming to tipping points where because the ice caps uh, have been shrinking, that we're not reflecting as much of of the sunlight and so that's making it even worse so it's almost like this downward spiral that's getting worse and worse and worse and it's almost at a tipping point where it's going to start to accelerate these negative changes as well yeah hopefully we don't get to that point so it's you know above two degrees apparently this this tipping point is and we don't want to hit that so you know Yuval he asked so where does nationalism fit this picture so globally right now we need to kind of hit this short-term pain of moving toward renewable energies and we're going to be much better in the long run but whatever countries make that short-term pain in that direction and the other countries don't then all of a sudden everyone just burns or or in a in a position of complete inaction so the idea of nationalism all of a sudden you're putting your nation's interests above the rest and then everyone in this nationalism point of view they're not moving together which, which is what's required uh, globally to fight the challenges of ecological disaster. Exactly. Because it is a global challenge that affects everybody, it requires a, a global solution where everybody works together. It's not a challenge that just one nation can solve by itself. And it's it's also potentially if almost all countries decide to work together and have this short-term pain where it could be more expensive in the short term, a couple of countries could think, oh, we're one country we're going to go fight for our country by ourselves and do things that nobody else is doing in terms of you know sticking with the old ideas that are currently cheaper and think oh we can dominate if we just don't do what everybody else is doing we can win in the short term but it's going to be worse in the long term yeah absolutely another challenge he goes into is the technological challenge and this is all about the combination of infotech and biotech which opens the door to an absolute plethora of doomsday scenarios ranging from digital dictatorships to creations of the global useless class it's sort of like if we one option could be combining humans and machines into you know cyborgs or something and we need to collectively as a as a global community decide on what the rules should be if if everybody says you know, let's not do this. And then one country thinks actually, yeah, let's make a sick race of half humans, half machines and use them to form an army that mm. is um, in, like the, is going to dominate everybody. That's a very bad scenario for most of the world, except for the people who make that. Yeah, definitely. So if you look at the most popularized concept of that, it'd be something like Skynet. And if we say the idea of Skynet in Terminator has a huge economic advantage and then from a nationalist point of view, say if you're China, you are going to do China a disservice if you do not create Skynet. But from the global perspective, Skynet's an extremely bad thing. And then now if you think of US on the other side of the earth, then if they don't get to Skynet before China do, Mm. then US are going to be at a disadvantage. So if you look at from the nationalist agenda, it's going to be a, a long spiral race down to the bottom. So who can create the best AI, the fastest and make the uh, economic disruption at the same time has some kind of risk to the human race of, you know, creating some offset AI with biotech that is just Skynet that goes around um, fucking everybody up. <laughs> so he says that, you know, it's, it's this massive global challenge that requires everybody 
to be on the same page in order to overcome it. But the big risk there is that if everybody has these strongly held nationalist ideas that they want to beat, they want to be the unique, they want to be special, they want to beat all the other nations, then we're in for a, a big world of hurt. So we need to all work together. Yeah, he says, a person can and should be loyal simultaneously to her family, her neighborhood, her profession, and her nation. And he's saying, why not just add the whole world to that list of people they should be loyal to? That's it. He's saying that everything we do should be in service of our family, in service of our neighborhood, in service of our nation. It should also be in service of of humankind overall and not doing these things that just help our nation but hurt humankind. Mate, absolutely. It's huge. Everyone, especially in, in Western countries as well, if we don't start caring about... You know, the people in the developing countries who are in the low water levels who are going to get hurt by the sea level rise and so forth, then, you know, we're, in a, we're going to be, have globally have a bit of a disaster. So, we've got to really care about people, not just purely based on where they're born geographically and have that link. You've got to fucking get rid of that one and then just start caring about the whole planet as a species. I don't know if that was intentional or not, mate, but that was a phenomenal segue into the idea of immigration, which is chapter nine. So, Yuval lays out like a philosophical way to think about immigration. So, there might be some people who are strongly against immigration, you know, holding these nationalist ideas that our country is our country, we shouldn't let these people in. Or on the opposite side is we should be completely open and everybody can come and go as they please. And so, they're two opposite ends of the spectrum. And Yuval lays out like a bit of a ground level underlying idea as to, you know, what should we actually be discussing and what are the ideas that we should be debating in terms of making decisions on immigration which i think is a great standing point to start any discussion rather than just having one idea at either extreme and just fighting each other hell yeah man so if you think about the immigrant when they want to go into the other country there's this kind of like this negotiation between what's acceptable between both and he breaks it down into three different terms and the first term is the host country allows the immigrant in right so the immigrant is cooked Family's getting blown up back at home, all this kind of stuff, goes on a boat to the other side of the world, risks his whole life and her life to get to the country and then arrives there and goes, all right, let me in, mate. Mm -hmm. And term two, so in return, the immigrant must embrace at least the core norms and values of the host country, even if it means giving up a little bit of their traditional norms and values. So that's what most people in the country would think, right? If you're coming into our country, at least you're going to adopt some of the things that some of our cultural norms and the way we do things. Yeah. Otherwise, our whole country's culture might get compromised by letting in all these other people. And then term three, the deal is that if the immigrant comes into the host country and they assimilate to a sufficient degree, over time, they become an equal. They become a full member of the host country and they're not they anymore. They're now part of us. And so, they're the three terms that is implicit in immigration and now Yuval goes on to four different debates as to how we need to think about these terms now. So the first debate is over term one, the host country allows the immigrant in. So the question that we need to ask, is this a duty that we have to do or is this a favor that we're doing for them? Because that's a, they're two very different ways to look at it. Yeah, and we don't have the answers here, but that's the question, right? We're going to define... Is it a duty that someone's struggling and they're another human being and they're being persecuted and if we don't let them in, they're pretty much cooked back to their home country? Or is it an obligation that we should let them in? Yeah, that's it. Does a host country have the obligation? Do they have to open their gates and let people in or do they have the right to pick and choose who they let in or can they just say, no, we don't want any immigration whatsoever? So that's, as we said, you know, it's not just saying, should we have immigration, yes or no? This is saying, okay, these are, these are what we're actually debating here. 
So the second debate is how far does the assimilation of term two go, right? So we had the idea that when an immigrant comes in, they got to adopt some of the cultural norms by how much, you know, an extreme yeah. of that might be they got to drop their religion and be who they are. But uh, then you got the other end of the, spectr- the spectrum and think, no, nah, they can be in exa- exactly how they are and they don't need to drop them. So what level do we make sure that they somehow adopt to the values of the host country? Yeah, that's it. He says that, you know, the term was the immigrants must embrace at least the core norm. So like how far does that statement go? Is it if they were in a patriarchal male-dominated society and they move to a liberal society, do they have to become feminists? And so, Or if they're from a deeply religious society, they move to a secular worldview, do they have to drop their religion completely? What about like traditional dress? What about food taboos? How far do they have to, you know, drop some of their traditional norms and adopt the new norms like to what degree that's the, that's what we're debating here and the third debate which is a really interesting one and this is in regards to the term three so if they uh, come to our country do they become us hmm. so it's the debate if they come in are they equal to everyone else in the country but that's one of the debates yeah is that it's it's also like so the the second debate was to what degree do they assimilate and then the third debate is how long do they have to be there before they become not just immigrants anymore how long until they become first class citizens how long till they become one of us so you know the term was you know over time they eventually become one of us but how much time and that's the other thing that we need to debate and then the fourth debate is is the deal actually working? Are both sides, uh, is the immigrant and is the host country, are they living up to their obligations of the first three terms and the first three debates? Yep. So again, you know, Yuval, he brings up a whole bunch of questions, not the answers, but it really does set the framework for the way of understanding it. And after reading stuff like this, you can really uh, put the whole thing in a, in a much better perspective, the debate around immigration, because it's going to be one of the big challenges of the 21st century. Mate, this is, um, I just thought it's like the book we did win bigly which is called you know about influencing and persuading people and it was called the high ground maneuver so the getting caught in the weeds would be one person that says no immigration don't let anyone in and the other side of the argument is let everybody in and they're just going to fight at each other but this is the high ground maneuver where we're going okay these are the three terms we can agree on these are the three things we need to debate it's just the 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 perfect way to have a structure to these debates not just fighting strongly for your biases and your strongly held beliefs exactly because in pretty much all of those debates both extremes will have a really bad consequence so it's yeah. like kind of what level do we draw the line at where you know where our policy is and that maybe is where the whole idea of the left and the right come in you got people with different values and then they can help debate hopefully you know open conversation and draw where you know the dividing line is important questions again and that's the end of part two and we move on to part three now which is called despair and hope and chapter 10 terrorism so if we look at terrorists since 2001 right so in the european union they've killed 50 people and about 10 people in the usa seven people in china and globally 25,000 people but pretty much all of the terrorist kills have been in the middle east iraq afghanistan pakistan nigeria and so forth in contrast, if we compare the death toll of terrorism compared to other areas of the world, traffic accidents kill about 1.25 million per year and diabetes and sugar kills about 7 million people and so forth. So this whole question is, uh, why the hell do we fear terrorism when sugar and things like this are pretty much probably 10,000 times more likely to kill you? But still, terrorism is at the top of the mind when basically you've got no chance of dying from terrorism. 
Exactly. And we, if he says, you know, if it's 25,000 people globally in the last 20 years compared to the effects of sugar or chronic air pollution, he's saying that the ideas of, of terrorism, because it's such a visual, visceral fear, you know, f- making fear the main story, it's this outstanding disproportion between the actual strength of the terrorists compared to the fear that they managed to inspire. So just a small act of terrorism that kills 10 people, which is obviously bad, but then millions of people feel the fear from that one single act. Exactly. So, you know, that's their disproportion. There's, they've really got no power at all. They're like a little little bitch. I'm going to use it in this scenario. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at the same time, they could cause this absolute ridiculous amount of fear. They somehow get on the front page of the yeah. paper. And it's what, you know, your, your old 60, 70-year-old reading the, the Sunday newspaper with the coffee just goes, oh, shit, you're scared. <laughs> Fuck are the terrorists. <laughs> the terrorists are coming to get us. I had and, someone in mind then, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also like the, uh, you know, the, the availability cascade from thinking fast and slow and that one terrorist act even though a very small amount of people were affected, front page of the newspaper, you know, headline news, everybody hears about it. And so then everybody thinks this is a massive thing that is going to impact everybody and completely change the whole world. Yeah, just because it's occupying a space in your brain, automatically you give it importance. Yeah. And that's the idea from the availability cascade. So, right, so how do the terrorists achieve so much? And the terrorists hope that even though they can barely dent the enemy's material power, their fear and confusion will cause the enemy to misuse their own strength and overreact. Yeah, so they think that, okay, say September 11, um, a couple of planes were hijacked and even though it was a small thing that they didn't impact materially on the nation, it led to a decade of sh- um, shifting all of the US's resources towards you know fighting the war on terror and that such one small act led to a massive shift because they've force the government and the people to misuse their their strength and you know focus on the wrong areas so yuval says terrorists resemble a fly that tries to destroy a china shop right so if a fly is sitting there going how am i going to destroy this china shop so what it does it goes and finds the nearest bull gets in the ear of the bull and starts and the bull just goes fuck and then the bull goes wild and all of a sudden, the bull just crushes the whole China shop and everything's destroyed in the process. Exactly. The fly is so weak, he couldn't even move a single teacup. But by getting in the ear of the bull and making a small impact, he's completely changed the way the bull acts. Exactly. So that's exactly what the US did. The US being the huge bull, right? So terrorists get in the, the ear of the US and the minds of all the US citizens and then all of a sudden the big bull jumps over to the Middle East fucks the whole <laughs> area of the world up and then in the process the terrorists actually grow stronger through this because through the political um, chaos that's where the terrorists actually thrive and that's what's happened and the terrorists are actually building in strength and it's been counterproductive what the goal of uh, this bull has been all along so the fear that the terrorists instill in us is that by only you know harming a handful of people, everybody now thinks there's a murderer lurking behind every tree. But what we need to do is realize that it's our own responsibility and the responsibility of every citizen to liberate his or her imagination from the terrorists 
and to actually remind ourselves of the the true dimensions of the threat. 100%, man. So the success or failure of terrorism, then it depends on us. Everyday citizens, you or me, it's up to us whether terrorism fails or succeeds because if we allow our imagination to be captured by these terrorists and let our fear grow disproportionately, then you know we're going to overreact to our own fears and then terrorism will succeed and still be a force in this world. Powerful shit, man. The next idea he talks about is... Chapter 14, Secularism. Now, most people think when they hear the word secularism as meaning non-religion as, or opposed to religion. It's not about what people believe, it's what people don't do or don't believe. But Yuval is saying that secularism is something that everybody should have, regardless of what your religion, like keep your current religion, but add secularism to the mix as well. Exactly. So it's a little bit of salt and pepper. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater just, you know, just add these, these human values kind of thing. We need to have as part of everyone's kind of belief system if we're going to uh, kick, some, kick some ass and kick some goals going into the 21st century. And so Yuval says that there's six principles, and I'm going to call them Yuval's six rules for life. Um, the first one, <laughs> the first one is truth. And so he's saying that the most important secular commitment is to truth, which is based on evidence rather than faith. Exactly. So, right, you know, science, the world's a sphere. It's it's not flat. <laughs> it's about what you know, billions of years old. It wasn't created t- ten thousand years ago or whatever. So, you know, just straight there, some of those go up against religion. So, uh, you know, a commitment to truth and understanding of that will take us forward. Exactly. Number two is compassion, and compassion is uh, he calls it another secular ethic, and it relies not on obeying the edicts of any. God, this God, that God, whatever your God is, but rather just a deeper appreciation of suffering. So he says that, you know, compassion would mean not killing someone, but it's not not killing them because God says don't kill them. It's not killing someone because you have compassion for other human beings. And the third rule for life, <laughs> <if you've> asked, <laughs> is equality. And he's saying, right, suffering is suffering no matter who, what experiences it. Knowledge is knowledge no matter who discovers it. Right. That's so it. we're all you know, at some level, we're all human beings and we've got the same kind of value, inherent, in, intrinsic value in all of us. Yeah, so you shouldn't be privileging the experiences or the, or the discoveries of any nation or class or gender or religion above anyone else. You shouldn't rank any of those above another. It's saying everybody's equal or like suffering is objective, knowledge is objective. Number four is freedom. So freedom to think, investigate, experiment and search for the truth. Yeah, it says humans should always retain the freedom to doubt, to check again, to hear a second opinion, to try a different path. You shouldn't have such overinvested supreme authority in any text or institution or leader that you just go along with whatever you're told. You should always have the freedom to, to second guess or a little bit of doubt to check again. Yep. Number five is courage. So when shit's going down... <laughs> You gotta to stick to your values, right? So when you know there's all this chaos happening around you and this political turmoil and people are just being, you know, tosses, you gotta just stand up, have some balls, and then like stick uh, for what you believe is right or what you know is right, you know, and away from these kind of biased opinions that you might have mm. culturally, culturally at the time and so forth. Yeah, he says it takes a lot of courage to fight biases and oppressive regimes, but he says it takes even greater courage to admit ignorance and to venture into the unknown. So, mate, we need, to, we need a lot of courage to admit that we don't know something 
and we need even more courage to venture into that unknown. Yes. And number six is responsibility, right? So this comes up in a lot of different books. This is probably from a slightly different angle on it. But at the end of the day, we flesh and blood mortals must take full responsibility for mm. whatever we do or don't or do. Don't, do. don't just handball your issues to the next person along the line. You got to fucking cop it, say, all right, this is me, I'm here, we're, we're going to solve this shit. Matt, that's Yuval Noah Harari's Six Rules for Life. Six things that everybody should have. He says, secular education does not mean, you know, indoctrinating kids against God or against a religion or anything. It's nothing to do with that. Instead, having a secular education teaches children to distinguish truth from belief, develop their compassion for suffering for all beings, to appreciate the wisdom and experiences of all of Earth's denizens, to think freely to not fear the unknown and to take responsibility for their actions and for the world as a whole. Hell yeah, Yuvala. Now we move on to part four, which is truth. And chapter 15, ignorance. All right, so right now, if you're feeling overwhelmed and a little bit confused about the whole global predicament, Yuval says you're on the right track. So if, you th- <laughs> hey, if you're feeling certain and good and rosy about the world right now, you're, you're probably... You know, you're, 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 not, you're not getting it, basically. So, if you're confused, you're getting it, which is good. Yeah. And now, chapter 15 is ignorance. So, we know less than you actually think. Yeah, exactly. We're learning more and more about the world, about ourselves, about the brain, about our emotions. And, you know, other books we've talked about, talk about heuristics and shortcuts and things that we use. And they were probably appropriate in the Stone Age when the world was a lot more simple, but they're woefully inadequate in this silicon age. Exactly, man. So we're making a lot of our decisions based on emotional reactions and heuristic shortcuts rather than on rational analysis. And you know, there's plenty of books that kind of explain this. And right now, what's happening in the world, no individual knows everything it takes to build a lot of the things we use, right? So as we've evolved, we've begun to know less and less about the world as it becomes so much more complex. Yeah. And we're relying on the expertise of others from almost all of our needs. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're learning more, but we're also, there's so much more that we have yet to still learn. As the world gets more complex, there's more to know, there's more to learn. And what we do is we rely on other people for our own, I guess, what we think is our own beliefs. So, like, say, if you want to build a cathedral, you can't do it by yourself. You're going to rely on other people's knowledge in specific certain areas of different parts of building that cathedral. So we're, we're becoming more interconnected in that we need other people's information because no one person can have it all for themselves. Yes, and then we think that other people's knowledge is our own when really we don't know. So he's got this idea of the zip illusion and it's a really humbling experiment. So people are asked, hey, do you, know how, do you understand the ordinary workings of a zip? It's something we use every day, a yeah, zip. Yeah, you think I mean, it's pretty simple, man. It's just like a, the teeth, the bit goes up and the things lock into each other and um, that's how it works. And then you zip, unzip and... Uh, oh, fuck, man. I don't know about the zip. <laughs> well, that's exactly right, mate. So, <laughs> at the first level analysis, you go, yeah, it's just a zip. It's you just simple. pull it's it up and then... Bits of metal, things lock into each other and then the other way they unlock. And But it's, it, there's a lot that goes <laughs> into the workings of the zip that you don't know right there. So, exactly. right there, Adam Ashton had the knowledge illusion where he <laughs> thought he knew it, but yeah. you know jack shit about a zip, mate. mate I I'm couldn't sorry. tell you what happens inside that little tiny piece of metal that obviously does a lot. Exactly. So, in, even though individually you know very little... We treat the knowledge in the mind of others like as if it's our own. Yeah. And so, the where that becomes an issue is someone who knows next to nothing about meteorology or biology 
is then responsible for creating a new policy to tackle climate change or to talk about genetically modified crops. So say a politician doesn't know a hell of a lot more than the average person, but they're responsible, one person responsible for making such a massive potential impact on the whole world that it's just a ridiculous thing to think that anyone would have that much knowledge to do that effectively. Exactly. We'll get in the politics later, but the, you know, the politicians probably as a rule fall for this knowledge illusion more than most. Mm. They believe they know a whole bunch of shit and then they make decisions based on the idea that they actually think they know it, but they don't. And you know, he says, while some hold extremely strong views about what should happen in Iraq or Ukraine, you ask them to point it on the map, they don't even know where they are, right? <laughs> Mate, people rarely appreciate their own ignorance. We don't know that we don't know because we lock ourselves in, in an echo chamber. Like, you know, like we've got like-minded friends and self-confirming news feeds where we've got these ideas and the same ideas are bouncing around in this echo chamber because we're all associating with similar types of people that we think we know everything when really we don't know how much we don't know. Yes, it's much easier for smart people to confirm what they already believe mm. rather than taking new information and admit they were wrong and ignorant the whole time and then change the actual idea. So, mm. with all that, we're not going to improve matters by giving people better information. So, exposing people's ignorance is likely to backfire, especially on things you know like global warming and so forth. You can't change someone's opinions about global warming by giving them a, a table of facts and figures. It just doesn't work. Yes, exactly. So, he talks about the black hole of power. Now, if you want to go deep into any sub any subject, right? So, if we actually truly want to learn something, we need to almost get bored and put enough space in our time to allow little seeds of insight come in and then blossom, and then we actually truly understand a whole topic. Yeah, he says you need to experiment. You need to find unproductive paths. You need to explore dead ends. You need to make space for doubts and boredom, and you need to have little seeds to grow inside of you. So what he says is you need the privilege of wasting time. He says if you can't afford to waste time, you're never going to find the truth. Exactly. And if uh, Yuval right now is giving you a lesson about how to become insightful, I think we should listen because the chapter's so far is some of the most insightful stuff I've ever met. <laughs> and if you compare that now to what's happening in the world, right? You know, everyone's got their phone, you're always connected, it's always buzzing. Uh, You've always got a podcast. You've always got Netflix. You're never going to get bored and allow these seeds in. So that's a little, a little cheeky side note. And now, if we look at leaders you, yeah, around the world, if you're too busy being busy, you don't have any time to delve deep into a subject and find out what you don't know and keep learning and get bored and do the wrong things to then actually understand. So stop being so busy. So the second big issue we've got, you know, the first one being not allowing boredom to let in the seeds of insight. So the second bad thing, in a sense, is that great power inevitably distorts the truth. And this is something that politicians have to deal with. Yeah, power is about changing the reality rather than seeing it for what it is. So the example is that the analogy, you know, if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. So if you're holding a hammer, you want to find nails and bang them. And even if you overcome this urge and you realize that, hang on, just because I'm holding a hammer doesn't mean I have to bang every nail, other people who see you holding that hammer, then they think, oh, this guy's got a hammer, he's just going to come and bang some nails. Mm. So it's it, it works both ways in that you personally have this changed view of reality that thinking everything's a nail and other people see you as having a changed reality as well. So you're pretty cooked if you hold a hammer. Yeah, 100%. So everyone's got a conscious and un unconscious agenda. So then you never really have full faith in what they say. 
if I was like sitting at a bar and Donald Trump rocked up, just because I know he's so powerful, I'm probably not gonna. I'm probably gonna behave in a different way. Yeah. So he's getting a, a little bit of different data about the world. So that's something on the the, mm. the three feet level. It's also happening at the fifty thousand feet level. Yeah. So right now, leaders, right, the whole world is becoming infinitely more complex as we've yeah. delved into. Uh, it's it's getting absolutely wild. And if you think about the issues for leaders, on one hand, they're they're absolutely trapped in the busyness to actually mm-hmm. get incredibly good insights about the world. And the on the other side of the thing, they're so powerful they're actually getting a distorted version of reality. Oh mate. So these the leaders are trapped in the double bind and he's saying that the problems are just getting worse. Because they're so busy and because they've got power their whole view of the world is distorted and they're the ones who are making decisions that impact everybody else and it's, we're just we're in this downward spiral of worse and getting worse. Mate, it's obvious as hell, man. Politicians around the world, are they really are clueless, man. This guy, <laughs> they are, they, Check out Who Is America, Sasha Baron Cohen, the new show, to yeah, just have a look one. at um, politicians and what they're, what they're really like. Yeah, I think, that, I think they should... Look at it now before we keep moving into the next, just to get a break from the Yuval's one, two, three punch convos, convos of insight that just fucking knock you out. So if you paused and watched an episode of Who is America, welcome back. Uh, and if you're still rolling with us, you're about to cop an uppercut. We've had the one, two, three punch combos, mate. It's time for the uppercut. This one is the uppercut. This is the killer blow with a with a side house roundhouse kick to your, fu- to your nose. So This is it. This is part five, the fifth and final part, resilience and chapter 20 meaning so he says homo sapiens is a storytelling animal and believes the universe itself works like a story right so uh you know there's heroes and there's villains there's conflicts and resolutions climaxes happy endings and so forth so we kind of weave all the data that's happening around in the world into some kind of narrative about what's going down and most importantly is we need to feel that we Every individual has a specific role within this cosmic drama. So there's the big story and we need to feel, hey, I'm a character in this story and I've got a very important role to play in the whole story. Exactly right. So this is what it comes down to. When we look for the meaning of life, that's a big question, we want a story that will explain what reality is all about and what my role is in the drama. Yeah. So... Um, you know, what's going down, what story is the, happening in the world and what is my role. So, as I, um, it might be apparent from this episode, for me personally, it might be, all right, climate change is a thing. So, I've got this whole story in my head about climate change. So, then all of a sudden, I've got a role in, into play and, you know, everyone else around the world might have a story and they've got their own role. Yeah, exactly. A few uh, illustrations or examples of this. One is from um, Hinduism. And the god Krishna explains to Arjuna that, you know, in this great cosmic cycle, each being possesses their own unique dharma, which is like their work, their tasks, their their role, their duties that they must fulfill. And whatever their dharma is, no matter how hard the path is, you enjoy peace of mind if you follow your path. So say there's a, a, a washerwoman who's devotedly follows her dharma, her path of the washerwoman, she is superior to the prince that she works for washing his clothes if the prince strays from his path of being a prince. So it's all about everybody has their meaning, their dharma, their role, and if you fill it, you succeed, basically. And if you don't, you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So another uh, area in popular culture where this whole story got popped up was through the Lion King, who repackaged this whole ancient story through the story of uh, Simba and Mufasa, now, we think about Simba and Mufasa sitting up there on that hill and Mufasa tells him about the circle of life. 
So he explains that the antelopes eat the grass, the lions eat the antelopes, and when the lions die, their body decomposes and feeds the grass. Now, when Mufasa gets killed by Scar, Simba runs away, hangs out with Timon and Pumbaa, is a you know a real immature little idiot. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata, baby. Everything's no worries. <laughs> but you know his dharma the whole time was to go and be the the big dog king of uh, the Lion King kingdom. Yeah. So Mufasa reveals, him, reveals himself to Simba, and then all of a sudden Simba finally understands who he is, what he should do, and he returns to the Lion Kingdom, kills his uncle, reestablishes harmony, and the movie ends with Big Bad Simba holding the new heir and the circle of life has been restored. Exactly, man. So it's this this story that there was a specific role for a, a specific individual and until he fulfilled that role, his life had no meaning. So until he went back and realized this is my dharma, this is my path, these are my duties, this is my role in the story, it all fell apart. So now if we go back to Yuval's story, which is quite interesting. Now, when he was young, he went to a ceremony where they sung songs about a, a, a fallen soldier. So, he's from Israel, a fallen soldier died, and at this ceremony, they were singing songs, waving flags, as if this dude was very, very important, dying for the nation, and so forth. So, there seemed to be a lot of meaning attached to this event. But then he thought, you know, I want to be like this guy when I grow up, but if I'm dead, how the hell are they going to recite the poem? Then he dug even a little bit deeper. He started thinking about the age of the universe. Hang on, what about in 200 million years? Are they still going to be singing more poems if I follow this path? And then he thinks, well, shit, indeed, there's actually going to be no mammals around altogether. So when he went to that horizon of 200 million years, it all just seems pointless, especially Mm. dying for some kind of flag. Yeah. So he says that whilst it is important to have meaning and to have a story where we feel that we have our role to play, in the, in the circle of life or whatever our story is. If we look at it too deeply, it starts to fall apart <laughs> a little bit. Exactly. So, we need to construct and form an identity for ourselves and give us some kind of role to play in the world. So, there are only two conditions we need in our life to have meaning. Yeah. So, the first condition is that our story, in our story, we need some kind of role to play. So, within the movie... We need to be one of the movie stars and so the first condition is that we need a role to play and the second condition is that our good story that we have, it doesn't extend to infinity but it does extend beyond our horizon. So, it goes a little bit beyond us but not too far beyond us. Exactly. So, uh, that's a common theme in other books. You know, you want to, if you want meaning in your life, you need to devote your life to something bigger than itself Mm -hmm. but if you extend the bigger than yourself horizon to 200 million years even that seems pointless so go beyond yourself but not not too far because if you look at from the perspective of the big bang in a billion years time you know we're just going to be a little fart in the uh, (laughs) at the end of the day uh the human species if you are are some people maybe not carl sagan yeah well mate and the big bang's a, a good example uh, in that, okay, so we there's a story of the Big Bang. So there was this these molecules and then one day there was a Big Bang and it expanded and then we got the universe. And so people can grasp onto that story without a, a real understanding of quantum physics. Like it's a simple story and it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's a little bit beyond our horizons but not too far beyond our horizons. So he's saying that like any good story, we need to think that, okay, it's it's beyond our horizons. We're impacting on people more than just ourselves and perhaps something slightly beyond after we die, we might leave some kind of lasting change, but we don't need to think that we're going to change the entire universe forever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it can it can 
it can be depressing looking at <laughs> some kind of light if you're really thinking about it. So he, he looks at the perspective of his grandmother, but you know, even if you just think of yourself, think about what cultural legacy was left behind by five generations ago, grandfather or whatever, and grandmother. In all likeliness, you're not going to remember who the mm. hell they are. Mm. Extend that a bit beyond. In, in five or six generations, no one's probably going to remember who you are, yeah. in all honesty, unless you're um, you know, a big papa making some big changes in the world. But uh, in all probability, you're not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> you're probably not. <laughs> so, you know, what's the fucking point? And Yuval, Yuval says, if we cannot leave something tangible behind, you know, such as a gene or a poem, perhaps it is enough if we just make the world a little bit better. So you can help somebody out and that person can help somebody else out and therefore you contribute to the world as like a little chain of kindness, right? Mm. So if your goal is just to make the world a little bit better, then maybe that's enough. I like it a lot, man. He talks about another analogy here, the weight of the roof. So he says that you know a good story, it has to give you a role, it has to extend beyond your horizons, but it doesn't necessarily need to be true. So he says like the roof is us, it's our story, it's our... Uh, our idea it's our role but he's saying that the roof is probably more important than the foundations because if you went too deep the it's going to be pretty shaky foundations whatever your story you formulate for yourself is based upon it's important to have the roof that the story the idea but don't delve too deeply into what it's built up upon because it's probably wrong (laughs) exactly so a story can be pure fiction and provide me with an identity that makes me feel like that my life has meaning so That's As you, you said, mate, you can knock any story out of the park. It doesn't have to be the perfect story, but it's 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 going to give you meaning. Yeah, that's it, man. So we need that story. We need that meaning to give us a sense of you know a role within this world and a meaning for our life. So that's, mate. That's that's our chapters we took from the book. We, our favorite <laughs> lessons. Our favorite lessons. There's a whole bunch more chapters, and as you can tell, like. Every sentence almost is, contains a lot of insight. And that's why this episode is has been so long. Yeah, I personally liked it more than Sapiens in that it's more relevant to right now. It's more tangible as to this is where we are. This is the sort of shit that's coming and this is what we need to think about in order to make it um, the world a better place or you know not destroy ourselves and have meaning in our life. And mate, it's an absolute mind blow. I reckon I, with the highlighter here, there was a big percentage highlighted much more than usual <laughs> yeah absolutely it's an absolute mind blower so if anyone wants to understand the world more this um, is a book. You're, you're not going to get a book that will help you in that goal as much as this one it's an absolute juggernaut in that in that regard being the first episode for october we've chosen the 21 lessons for the 21st century as our book of the month for the what you will learn book club What we do as part of the club, we send you a hard copy of the book, you read it, and you join in the discussion with us. Yep, so it's all the best books we read only. So if you haven't checked it out, go to whatyouwillearn.com slash book club.